good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Choir, how are y'all doing? I mean, you, you're hanging in there. If you notice, it's, we got a remnant, and thank you for being here. We're sitting down here, not that we think you have cooties, but we're sitting down here. So um, we love you and mean it. We love you and mean it. Sometimes God has us do things that just doesn't make sense. Now, that's the first word I must say with regards to our text this morning. It describes something that just doesn't make sense. It's, it's one of those things that happens and you give a doggy head tilt, hmm? you know? Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 32, 1 through 3. Jeremiah 32, 1 through 3, and then we'll pick up 6 to 15. Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you some context, because uh, it'll help understa you all understand the story a little better. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, and it, it wasn't just because he cried a lot, it's because he wept over um, the, the kingdom of Judah and the people and what God was going to do by taking these people into exile, or actually the people put themselves into exile. He also wrote the book Lamentations. That was a, that's a real upper, you know. There's a couple verses in chapter 3 of Lamentations that are really positive. Um, but he was, he was a weeper. He was not a fun guy to be around. You wouldn't want to ask him to a party. Um, all his prophecies were gloom and doom. You see, he foretold how God um, was going to come. God is, is Judah's rampant lust to pursue foreign gods and flagrant disregard for, for the Mosaic law. Well, this was opening the door for the Babylonians to come in and lay siege to the city of Jerusalem and take her people into exile. The people in the north in Israel have already been taken. Judah is fighting on. Now, the regular folks looked at Jeremiah as you and I would look um, at a street corner preacher carrying one of those signs that says, the end is near. Are you ready? You've seen those, haven't you? People standing on the corner. The end is near. Are you ready? Or the other one, you know, are, the end is near. Are you look busy? But, you know... That's what we would look at. Go, what is this person doing? Really? Is that the best way to get the message across? That's how people looked at Jeremiah. Really, Jeremiah? You really go to extremes and trying to get your point across. Yeah, the political establishment was grossly annoyed at Jeremiah because of his constant uh, grousing about the spiritual and ethical state of things in the southern kingdom of Judah. The king of Judah at this time was Zedekiah, and he was not a fan. He was not a fan of Jeremiah's. Um, not only did Jeremiah stir up angst among the people of the city, Jeremiah was thrown in jail because he, he, told, he dared to tell the king, in effect, listen, the city's going to fall, and you, O king, are going to be taken prisoner, march down to Babylon, look at Nebuchadnezzar in the face, and who knows whatever punishment lays waiting for you. 
Yeah, those are great upper words. That'll get you far. Got Jeremiah in jail. The king didn't like what he heard. Well, the year that all of this history occurred was 588 years or so before Jesus, um, when Jeremiah made his prophecies. And at this point, the Babylonians were building a siege works up against the wall of, of the city of Jerusalem. Now, in antiquity, what would happen is they didn't use the ladders to climb up. Um, what they did is they built a ramp out of uh, stones and dirt, um, and they would ramp up a real long ramp away from the wall and ramp it up so the army could march up the ramp easily, come to the top of the wall of the, of the city, and then pounce on the people from above. It was a very effective um, method of warfare back then. Well, that's what's taking place right now in this story. Babylonians are making the ramps so that they can come over the top of the wall and take Jerusalem. All right, with that in mind, let's look at Jeremiah 32, 1 through 3, and then 6 through 15. With that context, now we're going to see where, that, where we fit in that story. Hear the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, that is 588 B.C., at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had him confined. Zedekiah had said, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to give you and this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he'll take it. Well, Jeremiah said, you know, the word of the Lord came to me. And Hanamel, son of, your, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, buy me, buy my field that is Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Well, next thing you know, my cousin Hanamel comes to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Jeremiah knew at this time that this was the word of the Lord. And so I, Jeremiah, bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the money to give him, 17 shekels of silver, I signed the deed, sealed it, got a bunch of witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. And then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Asiah, in the presence of my cousin, Hanamel. Indeed, in presence of all the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all those Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. 
It's in all their presence that I charged Baruch, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both sealed and the, both the sealed deed of purchase and this one open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought into this land. Friends, that is the word of the Lord. It's thick, I know. Now let's make this real. Let's, make, let's, let's put this in parlance that we can really understand. You are hunkered down in Kiev. And you are hearing and listening to the sounds of war. You are hearing the sounds of explosion from Putin's missiles. And in the midst of the bombardment, you get a vision from God that says, you know, you really need, you're going you're to hear from your cousin that lives in the Donbass region where the, the Russians have control. And he's going to come to you and ask you to buy a piece of his property because he needs the money. Well, sure enough, the cousin comes through the, the, the enemy lines and comes to Kiev and says, listen, I need you to uh, buy this land that's over there in the Rush, Russian-occupied territory. And, and so with all the sounds of war, with all the noise, with all the chaos taking place, you go and you dig up some, dig up some cash, you get a notary public, and then you, give and you, you get people to come in and watch what you're doing, and then you give the signed deed and bill of sale to a trusted colleague and friend for safekeeping. It just wouldn't make sense to do that, would it? Here in the midst of war, I'm going to go buy some land that held in enemy territory. For what reason? It just doesn't make sense. They'd ask, what the heck are you doing? Friends, what are we to make of this story? This story reminds us, church, that how we as people and as a community of faith respond to chaotic times. It's a story that beckons us to look for the presence of God in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. It's a story, quite frankly, that reminds us to Share our story of what God has done for the sake of the church yet to be born. First, it's a story that beckons us to look for the presence of God in the midst of the mundane, the ordinary, and the chaos. In 1946, renowned Austrian psychologist and prisoner of war held in Auschwitz, Viktor Frankl wrote an incredible memoir about his experiences in the concentration camp and his reflections psychologically of what was going on. If you haven't read it, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was surrounded by death. He was surrounded by brutality. He was surrounded by the harsh cries. His wife was held in another concentration camp, and he worried about what she was going through. And he was trying to make sense out of nonsense. 
How do I make sense out of this chaos that is going on around me with all this death, with all this angst, with all this uncertainty? How do I get any, make any sense out of it? And you can't. He, he wrestled with the existential question in the midst of the sea of suffering around me. Where? Where do we get our sense of meaning and purpose in the sea of all this pain? Frankel believed that you and I get our meaning in the chaotic times from three places. Purposeful work, love, the love of another, not yourself, and courage in the face of despair. Courage in the face of despair. He noted that every person, every single day, has an opportunity to make a purposeful decision to determine whether or not he or she capitulates and gives up to the chaos around him or her, trying to rob them of their sense of self? Or do they look for presence of hope? I'm very mindful of what my wife Kelly taught me and the girls throughout her life. She, she would always say, I can, I can let cancer and heart failure define who I am, but I choose not to. I choose to define what cancer and heart failure is to me. It's a choice. She never let her illness define her as a wife, mother, sister, friend, woman of God. Victor Frankl says it this way. He says, everything can be taken from a human being, a man, but one thing. The last of human freedoms to choose one's own attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. You can take everything from a person, everything from a person, but you cannot take away their ability to choose their way. In their, in their mind and have a, incorporating the stuff. Jeremiah, beloved, he chose to hear God's, God's voice in the midst of the war with the Babylonians and the siege and the chaos. He, 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 he looked for the word of the Lord to hear it so he could declare a word of hope to a hopeless, despairing people whose city was about to be run over, burned to the ground, and people taken as exiles, slaves. But in order to convey that sense of hope, Jeremiah had to make a, a very public demonstration of what hope means. He bought some land in the midst of the war, to show the people that were gathered there in the palace in Jerusalem, God is not done yet. Jeremiah knew he was never going to see that plot of land that was miles away in Anathoth. But it didn't matter. Because the whole purpose of buying that was a sign of, I am going to plant hope through this action of buying a field I'll never see. Because the Lord promises houses and fields and vineyards shall again 
be brought back to this land. The late British Old Testament historian Ron Clements, he notes about our text that all the more significant, therefore, was Jeremiah's concern to ground hope on a deeper, more lasting foundation than just wishful thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope was no longer the short-lived possibility of averting or postponing disaster, but rather, hope is a discovery that there is no disaster that can take away that hope ground and founded in our hearts that is grounded on God. In other words, our hope comes from beyond ourselves and crashes into our lives as the, quote, word of the Lord. Like our text says, it comes from beyond ourselves. Our hope is grounded in a gracious, sovereign God who bestows that hope to us as a gift. But we've got to look for it. It's there. But we have to choose to look for it. We are aware of the fact that it is the Spirit of God that bursts this hope within us so that we may know that we know that we know that Jesus is with us now. That the power of the Holy Trinity has our future, even the future we cannot see, held gingerly in its hands. Hope. Hope acknowledges that we live in the in-between, uh, in-between the already and not yet. We know we've been redeemed, but we're not quite there yet when we see Christ again. And so in this swirly, chaotic time, look around us in our country and the world, how do we get hope? You see, hope is that surety that when we walk through fire, when we walk through the troubled waters, that there's a hope that has deeper, deeper and more lasting foundation because God holds us by His victorious right hand and leads us through those waters, leads us through those, power, power, uh, those fires and knows us by name. Indeed, He says, you are mine. Wow. And yet, beloved, our text not only reminds us of how we find meaning in troubled times. We have to look for it. But it reminds us that each one of us here has a duty to share that hope to the future. To entrust it to a new generation. You see, it's not just our hope. That's selfish. That's narcissistic. It's a hope for the community, for the future. Jeremiah entrusted the land's bill of sale for that plot of ground in enemy territory. He took the bill of sale, the original one that was sealed up, and then the other unsealed one that they could look at and examine. He gave it to his assistant, Baruch. Baruch was his scribe. Jeremiah knew he would not see 
that land. He knew he would not see the restoration of the people coming back from exile. But he knew he had to share the hope that God would be there. That the people will come back. And so, he buys the land publicly, dramatically, and gives the deed in front of everybody, letting them know God's not done yet. The question that haunts me, and it should haunt you too, is who am I, who are you deeding that word of hope to so those in the future will know about God's faithfulness? With whom are you sharing that deed that God has not done yet? Trust me. I won't see the future, but you will. Trust me in this. Who's your Baruch? Who's your Baruch? Friends, the the church, the world, and America is very swirly. It feels like it's getting sucked down a drain. But, do we show our children, our grandchildren, our world about us, and throw up our hands and saying, it's all lost, it's hopeless and despairing? Or do we point out God's presence in the unexpected places and help others in the future to learn how to see, to experience God's hopeful grace. Think, church. Think, beloved. Ask yourself, can I look for hope given by God in the midst of my day's swirliness? It's there. You have to look for it. But then I want you to ask yourself, too, who is my Baruch? To whom am I passing this faith and certainty of God's hope for a future generation. Let's think about these things, my beloved. And then let's do them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn this morning.